0: How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to 19-year-old Shrink. This is Will John Grande. Today, we have a very special guest with us. I'd like to welcome Trevor Shevin, who's a certified interventionist professional, who's combined years of experience with mentoring, coaching, and a successful career on Wall Street to conduct highly successful interventions with positive outcomes, even in the most extreme cases. And after years of developing a stellar reputation, working with many prestigious families, companies, and institutions in the U.S. and overseas. He decided that he wanted to start on his own path, in which he later founded Sterling Recovery Services. Uh, Some of the support that Sterling offers includes outpatient recovery groups, sober companions, sober escorts, but also yoga, nutrition, counseling, family education, and more. Um, We're really looking forward to this conversation, so thanks for joining, Trevor.
1: Thanks, Well, It's great to be here.
0: Awesome. Um, just starting off, can you just give me a little bit of background of how you got into this industry?
1: Uh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, I'll, I'll probably the best way to do it is to self-disclose a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're going to school, they suggest you don't, but I actually I find it helpful. So, you know, I'm in my late forties, you know, I say tongue in cheek, but, you know, I, I, I'm a recovering uh, Wall Street guy, I guess is the best way to put it. I spent over 10 years on Wall Street. I have an MBA living in Manhattan, uh, mostly living in the West Village. And um, things look very, very good on paper for me. Um, you know, married, pretty much doing well, well in life, I guess is the best way to put it. The reality was I was a complete mess on the inside. And, and a lot of it stemmed from from trauma and things in childhood, you know, I, I grew up in a great town in, in Rye, New York on paper, like good parents, two older brothers and whatnot. I played sports my whole life all the way through college. But, you know, my, my, my father was actually an alcoholic and a bit of a rageaholic. He was also a diabetic and, and he, he passed away uh, many years ago from, from all the above mentioned things kind of, you know, conflating together. And, um, from a young age, I had struggled with self-esteem issues and, um, and look to 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 sort of get away from that that family system and and so um, I pushed myself and I did fairly well in school and like I mentioned in sports, which was a really good outlet for me and uh, wound up uh, engaging in, in in Manhattan and 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 having a pretty good career. What I tell people often is that I accumulated a lot of masks because I was I was terrified of people really getting to know me well. Um, I was extreme. I felt extremely vulnerable, and so the low self esteem led to a lot of people pleasing and. I wanted to make sure, you know, as was well liked and well received. You know, some of it was sincere, and some of it was sort of manipulative because I just I wanted to um, feel like belonged, and I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. Um, and so. Things kind of culminated for me pushing through when I when I was 29 years old. I, I was at the World Trade Center when, when 9-11 happened. And um, it was, um, you know, a, a lot for anyone, obviously, to take in, um, whether you were there in person or seeing it on TV. You know, everyone has some kind of tie to that and um, lost some very close people in my life. And um, I was what you would call um, a very, like, high-functioning, I guess, alcoholic. Um, I was, you know, into drinking a lot and, and dabbled in cocaine and, and other drugs as well, but high functioning that, you know, I never really lost a job because of it, or, you know, I never got arrested or anything like that. I think it was when I was in business school, I read, uh, Warren Buffett once said, you know, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, but, but only 10 minutes to destroy it. And I did everything I could to make sure that that 10 minute window never happened. And it was exhausting. And so, um, I was very lucky. uh, Some friends of mine essentially intervened on me a few years after that. I wound up getting help and and I got very much engaged in sort of my own recovery with therapy and and other avenues as well. And about a year or so into my own journey, um, I had this existential feeling of like, you know, most of the things on paper that looked good were very actually a lot of it came from. Were driven by my fear and, and and ego in the clinical sense, ego and and uh, so you know I I wanted to do something that had a lot more meaning and purpose. And after a lot of soul searching, I decided to go back to school. And I didn't know what I was going to do if I was going to try and hang a shingle up in Manhattan and and work with other people like me or, you know, as a therapist. And one thing led to another. I started doing what's called clinical intensive case management, and also um, became a, a you know a certified interventionist and. I was, you know, the industry I'm in today has become a lot more, uh, I guess, saturated. But back then I was a bit of a unicorn, like there weren't many people at all that had my background. So there were silver linings, those masks that I was talking about that I I had to, um, some of them came off easily because I knew they weren't weren't serving me well. Others I had to pull off because I had heavy attachments to them. Um, There were silver linings to them in that I wound up um, getting a lot of really interesting opportunities. And. Um, working in spaces like at, at you know companies that that I worked at uh, saw me as, as an opportunity to be able to reach other people who were struggling, and so um, my career, you know, I think if I got into the field today, the way it's 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 um, become much much more uh, popular to be in this. I don't know what the best way to put it, but it, it's a lot more. Uh, a lot more competition, I guess is the best way to put it, or colleagues, I should say. I really, my career kind of rocketed. And so, you know, I wound up getting a pretty well-known reputation first kind of locally in the Northeast and then nationally, and then even internationally and working with all sorts of different people, um, all walks of life. I think like there's a little bit, you know, certainly um, a lot of high profile people, celebrities, athletes, and, and, you know, Wall Street and whatnot. But, and, and it's not that that's a myth per se, but, I think um, yes, there's a, a significant portion of the clients that we work with fall into that category. But we work with, with everybody, and this really is an equal opportunity destroyer. It, you know, it, it doesn't matter where you are on the socioeconomic scale, or you know, your background or whatnot, age, anything like that. You know, what alcoholism really is is it's the inability, and it's alcoholism is really a misnomer. In my opinion, it should just be addiction, but because I don't care if it's alcohol or drugs or gambling or sex, or or for some people it can be Skittles. It's, it's the inability to process through your emotions, like quote unquote, normal people whatever that means. Um, uh, so you look to anesthetize how you're feeling. And so eventually you start uh, experiencing consequences. And, you know, there's really two consequences. There's tangible consequences, it could be DUIs or loss of job or loss of relationships or whatnot. But There's more subtle ones, um, emotional ones like isolation, feeling alone, secret resentments, hatreds and whatnot, and um, a lot of shame and whatnot. And so when you're experiencing consequences, yet you continue to tap into whatever that maladaptive coping mechanism is, that's when you kind of know there's a problem. So I'm digressing a little bit. But for me, like that was sort of the launch into this career. And fast forward to today. You know, I, I now I you know I teach grad students. I have, I have a company uh, based in Greenwich, Connecticut, but like I said, we work with families all over the world. And um, I'm I'm on the board of the National Council of Alcohol and Drug Dependency, Westchester, and uh, another one called Dogaholics, which are both nonprofits. And I do what I can to give back and, and pro bono work and whatnot. And so that's kind of um, how I you know maybe more than you're asking for, but how I got into this field and 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 you know where I'm at today
0: it's so great to hear like just hearing how your story like obviously you were struggling for a very long time but you flipped it into something positive and now it's something like you're passionate about helping other people and I'll get into like what you've been doing and how that process works but I kind of want to go back also to like what your story was growing up with your dad like what was your idea of an alcoholic or an addict then and how has it changed to like now because I feel like I've been around like in my family, there's been alcohol issues growing up. And I always had like an idea of what that meant. And you kind of alluded to it already, but if you want to go into further detail about like the Skittles and like the drug addiction sex, it's not only about like alcohol, but if you want to maybe talk about how that has kind of evolved throughout your life, your idea of what that actually is.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, that's a great question. You know, I so for me, you know, I thought so. I was born in nineteen seventy two. I'll date myself a little bit, but you know, okay. to me, an alcoholic was, um, you know, like like um, when you're in in the city and sort of the bums on the street with the brown the brown bags covering the booze and all that, and you know, you're kind of toothless and 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 homeless, and you know, your life is a complete mess, and you can't stop drinking. That's what I used to think, like, you know, meant, you know, someone was was an alcoholic. And and that's so not true. I mean, that can be one slice of what it is, but there is a whole spectrum. Like I touched on, you know, the average person who struggles with addiction and even mental health, believe it or not, has a higher IQ than the average person who doesn't. But we also tend to be a lot more sensitive. So. It's it can be a lethal combination if you're fairly bright and you're keenly aware of how you feel. Like so, there's always what we call co-occurring disorders. Um, so very few people I know just love the taste of alcohol so much that it that it you know causes so much uh, tragedy in their life. And and no one I know when they were five years old kind of raised their hand to their parents said, I can't wait to grow up and be an alcoholic or an addict and you know have all this uh, calamity going on in my life. So it it is a disease and. A lot of it, it's more about how someone thinks. My personal belief is every human being has two things in common. We're we're what we call sentient beings. We're all seeking happiness and pleasure and we're all trying to avoid pain and suffering. And, and, and it's neuroscience, you know, we, we want dopamine and our brains are wired that way. And people who are of sound mind and very healthy have healthy habits to, to achieve that. Oftentimes people struggle with addiction. We almost are, you know, our the wiring of our brain is taking shortcuts when we feel emotional emotional adversity tied to those co-occurring disorders And and not to get to whatever clinical, but a co-occurring disorder just means anything on the mental health spectrum, like, could be anxiety, it could be depression, it could be personality disorders, or whatnot. And of course, you know, trauma, big T, little t trauma doesn't have to be World Trade Center type stuff, but it, you know, it can. And many people have been through much, much, much worse than I have that didn't, that have healthy ways of coping, healthier ways of coping. And that's what made me a, an addict or an alcoholic was that the inability to, to really work through that. So I think a good example would be like, if I was to tell you what I consider my first drink, and I'm not going to go into too much detail out of respect for my father's who's deceased, but I'll just say um, there was a really bad incident one night when I was sitting at the dinner table and it was very scary and I wound up getting sent to my room and and my parents were arguing quite a bit and I was uh, having a lot of anxiety. I would, mind you, I was uh, eight years old at the time and I was upstairs in my bedroom and and I heard my dad coming up the stairs and He was absolutely, absolutely furious. And, you know, he busted into my room and veins sticking out of his neck and he's kind of seething. And um, he said something very aggressive to me and uh, threatening and scary. And I was sitting there just shaking. And um, he left and, you know, it was in my head um, quite a bit and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I waited and I waited and I waited until the lights finally went out. And I didn't even have this intention. I just did it instinctively. I, I I crawled on the floor, like a little army crawl, to the to the bathroom where we had um NyQuil in the closet. And there was like three quarters of a bottle of NyQuil. And I just chugged it because I remembered how that made me feel. It was a great way to numb out. And and I just instinctively knew how to do that. And and so that to me was technically what I would call my first drink, even though it wasn't a Budweiser or, or whatever. But That was me needing something, you know, causes and conditions. You know, there are heavy drinkers out there who aren't necessarily alcoholics. They don't have a Jekyll and Hyde personality shift. They don't experience consequences. They're able to stop and whatnot. For me, I needed to really, uh, I just couldn't cope. And so it wasn't like I went straight from there to drug use. And, you know, I, I semi joke when I say Skittles, but not really. I think growing up when I was a kid, sugar was my number one addiction you know i remember when i was feeling a lot of distress um, i would toast like country white these big like two or three slices of bread i'd put butter on it sugar and cinnamon i didn't know it was called cinnamon toast when i was a little kid but i would, i would numb out on that and like almost to the point where i was n- nauseated and and that's that is essentially what alcoholism is so you know it's again you know the inability to process through our emotions. We have these maladaptive coping mechanisms and we experience consequences because most people, when they touch a hot stove, they know not to touch it again. Addicts or alcoholics, we tend to go to the source of pain looking for comfort. And it makes no sense unless you understand the disease or, or you're, you know, you are an alcoholic or an addict or in recovery to really, you know, get a full grasp of that. But it's really true.
0: Would you describe it as just kind of like a subconscious process? Like, where it's just like things are just happening automatically, like, It's kind of like habits, like in that regard, when you like picked up that, well, you just did it without even like thinking, is that kind of what alcoholism or addiction is in like a nutshell?
1: So I, yeah, I've never really heard it like that. And and I need to reflect on that. But I'd say, I think there's something to that. So there's something called neuroplasticity, which is sort of the, the, the rewiring or healing of the brain. And so in recovery, once you were really looking to rewire not brainwash but rewire your brain essentially to having better habits so knowing that we're all driven for for dopamine you know it's in learning like what exactly that means for us so when i think of um what happiness used to mean to me growing up what i thought it was was excitement and fun and like partying and doing you know crazy stuff and all that and don't get me wrong i, I like to have fun and all that stuff's great to me today you know where I'm at in my life like it's it's really peace of mind and so you know if if I was a boat like out on the ocean metaphorically and I was only like 3 degrees off course but you know when when I was at the height of everything I was way more than 3 degrees off course like course uh, every year that goes on that that gets wider and wider and wider that gap and it becomes much much harder to recalibrate and, and so um, to what you're saying, I guess you're asking, like, do you really have a, a choice? And you know, like people make crazy decisions. It seems like they're choosing like that bottle of vodka or heroin or cocaine over their kids. And it's as if your brain gets kidnapped um, when, you're, when you're, you know, in it. And so it can seem, um, it, it often is so hurtful and so painful. And, you know, they, they call it a family disease, not just because there, there can be a genetic disposition to it, but really because there's a ripple effect that happens. So if you have a parent or a loved one, you see the ripple effect, how it works through the family, and it can really make the family system very sick. Uh, so what I like to do when I'm helping families is, you know, yes, we're looking at, you know, there's a term that is, you know, some people use called an identified patient, but basically the person who's who we're doing the focus on to get them to help raise their bottom and get them in, in, into treatment. But, you know, they're, they're, we're looking at the whole family dynamic because it, it can be pretty tragic, as, as, as I'm sure you know, what can happen and, and um, very, very traumatic to be, to have someone that you love and care about so much struggle so much and, and cause so much destruction in their life and, and our lives. So, you know, I, I think as, as far as your question, yeah, there, it's, it's just, it's a disease. Like, again, it's not like it's a choice. Um, you get a choice sometimes to get help and learn a whole new way of living but it's, it's the way your brain is wired. And and oftentimes I hear from people struggling, you know what, if you felt the way I felt, you would do what I do too. And so, you know, there, there is a lot of truth to what you said.
0: That makes complete sense. And like, from my own experience, seeing like people, a lot of your story, talking about yourself, like resonated um, with people I've seen in my family it being like high functioning. And I would have this situation where they're, you know, really hardworking. They're always like, Helping out, you know, members of my family. And then all of a sudden it's five o'clock or six o'clock, and like I'm talking to a completely different person. And being like a kid growing up, especially during your like developmental years, it was like really tough for me because I didn't know what like alcoholism was. And I just thought that 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 was just normal, like that you would just change at a certain point in the day. And I was just always so confused by it. Um, but just kind of understanding that it's separate from like the substance and it's more about like the thinking and like the feeling because like i was talking to my friends about this it's not like everyone like loves the taste of beer or something like that we were saying like someone said like oh i love the taste of beer and we're like really like it was like confusing to us not everyone's like oh i love the taste of beer like i would drink it a lot of it has to do with like the feeling it gets and taking yourself out of your struggles for a little bit even though if you don't realize it because college is a little tricky because you just think that's the normal um, which I'll get into in a little bit, but it's just very interesting to know that that a lot of it is tied to like your feelings, not the actual thing that you're using to distract yourself from those feelings.
1: And, and one thing that's you're, you're spot on. So, you know, what you'll hear often people say in recovery is that the, the alcohol or the drugs or whatever it is, the gambling or the sex, addiction part is, you know, that's just a manifestation of the underlying issues, there's sort of a soul hole, if you will, this, you know, and and so um, it's very, very hard. So that's what makes recovery and treatment hard. And that's why you see a lot of relapse, because there's a, a misconception from people who are struggling with this, when you finally have that, you know, that awareness, well, if I could just stop drinking, then I'd be okay. And that's so not true. In fact, the alcohol in that case was actually a solution for a very, very long time. And then it kind of almost turns into an abusive relationship, if you will, where you don't know what's going to happen sometimes when you're, when you're using alcohol. And then eventually it, it just owns you and, and you have this almost nostalgia, if you will, or to to, to want it to be what it once was. And there's a saying in recovery, you know, once, once a pickle, never a cucumber again. And 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 it is progressive in nature, but it's really just a manifestation of underlying issues. So when people just want to detox or get the alcohol out of their system, it, they're left, they're they're that same person who needed that at one point. That there's been no healing, no therapy, no transformation of that uh, recovery, and that's why again, you know, relapse can be very high because the the, the notion of just stopping the manifestation part has nothing to do with the getting to the root of the underlying issues. I, I hope that makes sense.
0: No, totally. And what do you think, like, what are the people that are successful that get out of rehab? What do they do differently? And what are they like? Like, yeah, what are they practicing differently that the people yeah. that are, you know, failing aren't?
1: So, I mean, it, it. there's a wide band and I don't think there's, there's definitely many, many ways to get you know, into recovery and sober. You know, some people take a spiritual approach. Um, there's an old Latin saying from thousands of years ago, and, and I probably will butcher it. So don't oh, quote yeah. me on it. Yeah. Essentially, it's, it's um, <clears throat> spiritum contra spiritus, which is liquor and alcohol. Sometimes it's called spirits, which comes from the Latin root. So it's, it's spirituality can conquer the spirits or alcohol or liquor. And so many people who struggle with alcoholism have obsessive thought patterns, you know, even whether it be OCD or something like that. And so developing a spiritual approach, I know for me, I was so tied to outcomes and results my whole life, whether it was sports or Wall Street or, you know, what people thought of me and people pleasing. And it's a really toxic way to live. And so the noise would get so loud in my head about all that, all those things I had no control over, trying to embrace a spiritual approach to life where I could, just focus on my side of the street and put one foot in front of the other and let outcomes and results, you know, take care of themselves the things that to me was, was what distinguished like really good recovery for me. But I think one of the commonalities is, is a real understanding people who tend not to do well, I kind of break it down to, and it's okay to have part of this, but I call it compliance versus surrender, right? So compliance is, I want my my dad or my wife or or the judge or work off my back or whatever it is. And uh and so I'm gonna comply and do what I need to do until that happens. And as that incident gets further and further back in the rearview mirror, I'm gonna regress back to my old ways. Whereas surrender is, I don't know what kind of language I can use on your podcast, but this this is kick my ass. Like I am, I am like totally, I get it, I get it. Like the, I cannot drink or drug or whatever it is safely um anymore i might be able to do it on occasion but i'd never know when it's going to go you know where i'm going to wind up you know in a really bad situation and 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 i don't know if i'm ever going to be able to you know whatever it is if i can stop or something you know whatever it might be and my judgment goes down and so when you have that healthy surrender and it's very hard because of our egos and pride and nobody comes into recovery without an enormous amount of shame you know shame you know i had to learn the difference between shame and guilt Guilt's feeling bad about certain things i've done specifically shame was feeling bad about who i was as a person I, I didn't like who i was and and understandably so by the way i was living like the double life the triple life and, and whatnot uh so so one of the common ingredients i would say is really having a healthy understanding that this you know it, it's i need to surrender to this i need to figure out a new way to live that's what a bottom is, is people keep talking to me like, what's a bottom, you know, did you have your bottom yet? And every bottom has a trap door, you know, but what a bottom is, is when you really in your soul know the notion of continuing to live life the way I have seems more daunting than trying something else. Like this is just not working and almost, you know, like not an active, it could be active suicide, but the passive. like, uh, you know, I don't want to live, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't like who I am. I don't like how life feels. And you know those type of people when they get to that space really tend to do well and it's it's an acronym uh, gift of desperation you know really wholeheartedly wanting to have that open mindedness that humility and that willingness to to do what it's going to take to have that transformation into this new way of life and the people who do that by the way it's hard as hell it'll be the hardest thing anyone will ever have to do. It's by far the most rewarding. And, and and what I love, what I do, and why I'm so passionate, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm speaking too much, um, it, the transformation that I get to see not only in the people that, that we work with, but their whole families, it's it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And, and the last place I thought that I would find peace of mind growing up being so worried and scared all the time and, and all the traumas and stuff that I experienced the last place I thought I'd find my peace of mind was in helping other people. I, I had a hard enough time taking care of myself, and it's amazing to you know to to find so much joy in that. And so um, I don't know. I'll, I'll pause there. I hope I answered your question.
0: Oh, totally. Like a lot like, things I like took away from that. Like my dad always says, "It's gonna get worse before it gets better." I know it's kind of cliche, but that's kind of what you said about like getting down to that like rock bottom. And then I also took away like from like reading books about this type of stuff. And like basically about like being identity focused versus goal focused, because the people who might be unsuccessful with going through rehab, I don't want to speak for them because I've never gone through that. But I feel like in that situation, sometimes it's not as much a part of like, I want to be this person. It's more, I want to like satisfy whoever is saying, I need to do this. Like I'm doing it for them, not for me. But with the other people, because they're trying to establish an identity, that's why they're able to carry it out longer than you know the actual being in rehab and everything like that. I I hope that's maybe along the lines.
1: <laughs> yeah, you're you're spot on. But I will say this: most people come into recovery complying. Right? Nobody makes changes unless we're in discomfort. Like you know, if you're in a nest, and that's why people like you know, you'll hear like, oh, you're enabling them, you're codependent, all these words get thrown at the support system, if you will, and, and shaming the support system. But, but there is some truth to that. And I don't believe in shaming or blaming, I view people as being sick and suffering when they're struggling with this. And so my approach is uh, very much coming from a place of love and compassion, as opposed to judgment or hot seat, but you're, you're spot on. But mo- most people, there is some part of compliance, because When you're in this, you don't even know what life can be like. So some people come in in compliance, if you will, like they need to make some changes and then they see the light and they're able to like in good recovery, you're kind of looking at how you're essentially powerless over this, like as as smart as you might be, as accomplished as you might be or not, this has kicked your ass, you know? So now it's time for me to surrender and figure out a different way, but it's okay for someone to start treatment essentially out of fear of, of consequences. And hopefully with the right treatment team, there's a transition over to that surrender and that awareness. And that that can be really, really powerful too. So I don't want to give this suggestion that someone has to be fully surrendered for them to, to start on their journey. It can start under compliance, but hopefully with the right clinical team can shift or awareness or, you know, self-awareness can shift into more of a surrender formation, if you will.
0: That's good to know. And also like kind of building off of that in regards to like when they are, you know, starting off and you're obviously an interventionist, there's a lot of stigma surrounding being an interventionist and some (laughs) people obviously might be like stubborn when going into it. So like, can you discuss, you talked a little bit about like your approach, but if you want to go into more detail, like what that looks like with a client um, and like what your style is and like, is it different? Like even, if you have the same style, like how do you approach it with different like types of people?
1: That's a great question. I'll try and think of the best way to answer it. So I often tell people like, I, you know, you think as an interventionist, I might not say what I'm about to say, but I, I hate the word intervention. I really do. I, I hate the associations that people have with it, what you know, what they see in movies and TV and sort of this you know, Maverick style of whatever, you know, so that's just not who I am. And that's, and maybe for some people who, who are interventionists or do interventions, maybe they are successful, but I don't think you're ever really gonna shame someone or, into you know, from an intellectual standpoint or rationalize someone into getting help. I think the best way for someone to get help is when you, when you really reach them in their heart. And so, you know, I do have a really, really high success rate of getting people into treatment, because of that, I think I come from a very compassionate place and and connect with the individuals. So there's many different styles of interventions and all of them can can work. And, and I pick and choose from different ones, but like by and large, when I'm working with the families, like sometimes so some companies have agreements with me, some Wall Street firms where I come in and we do what's called like an executive style of intervention. And that's that's pretty cut and dry and and, and um you know it can it can be dynamic, but there's more um nuance and I guess artistry, if you will, and, and and the family ones that are that I really love. And I base my model off of the Johnson model. And even furthermore, like you know, this approach came out several years ago called the Love First Approach, which sounds hokey, but it's really effective. And I have my own spin on it. But you know, I do use letters because it's very emotional um, and they're formatted a certain way. There's three parts of the letter. And I'll just say this, um, the first part of the letter, which is essentially all the things that you love about this person. And you might have to go back because if you've been dealing for years with someone who's been struggling and you you might have your own resentments, but, you know, you can go back to <clears throat> childhood or stories and whatnot. What we're really trying to do is number one is they're going to feel a little bit like what's going on here and in, in under siege if you will we want to disarm that very very quickly and also the second part of that is we really want them to um remember who they really are which they might have lost sight of after all these years so you know it's a it, it's very powerful it's very emotional i've never done interventions where we haven't had to go through some kleenex and you know about 85 to 90 percent of the time they go to treatment when I do this of the 10 to 15% that don't that day they go, um, of the 10 to 15% that don't go that day, half of those go usually within a week thereafter. And I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I could spend a half hour describing the whole process, but, you know, the ones that don't even go, usually I'm getting a hug or some kind of a handshake. And, and there's a follow-up that goes along with that, that eventually gets them into treatment. I don't think uh, coming in and, and when someone feels so horrible about themselves, and that's sort of at the crux. Of, of their addiction and, and inflaming that. And um, is going to be a very effective way. And even if they do go to treatment, they're going under a sort of a resentful manner. And, you know, I think it's amazing what happens. There's a lot of work that goes into an intervention, the pre-intervention, all the work that there's a rehearsal that, you know, oftentimes I call it the, uh, the intervention leading into the intervention. Sometimes there's, you know, uh, a good interventionist has to understand the family dynamics and is, you know, sometimes, times, like, for instance, when I'm doing an intervention that involves a celebrity, there can be a party that almost is a saboteur, whether they know it or not, they have an unhealthy attachment to the person staying sick, so that they can control that. Now, that's not normal. And most agents aren't like that. But it does happen. But that doesn't You know, that's an easy example to understand. But that happens in family systems, too, on more subtle ways where I then have to get that person aligned for our purposes. Because, we're as strong as sort of the weakest link in that. And if someone's going to have some sort of an unhealthy attachment, if someone's staying sick, then they shouldn't participate. And it's my job to understand that. And and so, you know, the, the second and third part of the letter is more the however is like the hardest part to write because no shaming and blaming, but you have to write some things out as to the ripple effect of how this is, this is no longer just about you. This is about how it's affecting me. And I'm at my bottom. As someone who loves you and cares about you i can't you know i can't continue to engage in your life like this you know it's just this isn't working for me either and then the last part is sort of the you know it's very simple you know we brought in a professional to uh, help us navigate through this um, this difficult situation and will you please accept the help that we're, we're offering to you today and so um you know so that's um that's kind of the the, the crux of, of the intervention um if you will but I don't, you know, I usually call it a family meeting or a gathering. And sometimes I'll do what's called an invitational style where we'll actually let the person know that we're going to have a meeting that's involving them and invite them to it. And there's many different sort of hybrids amongst that. Um, and, um, you know, there's there's um, I'll just say if anyone reaches out to you well and wants information. Uh, you know, I could, uh, I'm happy to point someone in the right direction, or there was a, an article that Shatterproof did on me on interventions, um, which is a nonprofit. And, and you know, I kind of go through my whole process and what I think is really good to look for when when trying to find an interventionist and what's involved. And, you know, I'm happy to send you that link if anyone's looking to, to read up on that and get more detail.
0: Definitely. And also, like, would you say that a lot of the people that you deal with are they coming from families or like a history in their family of alcoholism or is it sometimes people like where this hasn't really been an issue and like if that's the case what has triggered them to like start using that alcohol is it just like what we've been talking about
1: so you know it's a mix um it's definitely a mix of both you know you'll it's uh sometimes alcoholism can be dormant you know there's a term called you know being a dry drunk right where you might not be active in your addiction whatever that might be you might not be um but you know you remember i mentioned you know you it's not the alcohol and when we're talking about alcoholics again or drugs or whatever it is um it's just the manifestation of underlying issues so some people avoid the manifestation part but they're still left you know f- basically dry from drinking or whatever it might be but but active in their disease and sort of their behaviors. And, and so other things I see sometimes with professional athletes, there might not be, you know, so much of a history in their family, they have a, a horrible injury, they get hooked on pain, painkillers, or, you know, talk about having to take a mask off your whole life, you've been told, you know, what class to take, what to eat, where to be what to do. And and then all of a sudden, you have a, a career ending injury. Uh, and to to help you with the pain and the process of that, you're now you're taking painkillers, you're depressed, your whole persona has taken on a shift. And, and, you know, you can, you know, so it doesn't have to be as I'm giving a, an easy example to understand, like an athlete, but that happens all across the board, like major hits to our life. Um, for whatever reason, women tend to their, their, their addiction tend often is more dormant, and they tend to get into recovery later in life than most men. That's not, of course, always the case. There's 16 year olds, uh, women and, you know, females in recovery, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, things that go into that. I, I won't go into all my hypotheses on that right now, but, but, um, you know, it's, you know, sometimes it can be dormant. Um, people can get triggered for lots of different reasons, you know, uh, there might not be access to alcohol or drugs, like, uh, in, in their family history, like, like they have today, you know, you just, you, you never know what it might be. And so, um, it's hard to really say for sure what what causes what. You know, it's more about well, here we are. Uh, it, it's it's fairly easy to assess that this is a, this is an issue. Where do we go from here?
0: That helped me out a lot because I was just wondering like how that works with like your clients because you know obviously like there's a lot of people like. And also a lot of people that aren't like who come from families of alcoholism and some that don't. I kind of want to shift also to you were just talking about, you know, you have young people as well that come in to like Sterling and for like for this treatment. And then I think at my age, it's like a very tricky age because college for me, I didn't drink in high school at all. And like I don't even drink that much during like like I drink maybe once or twice a week. And for me, like at times, like I feel like when we have like parties and stuff you kind it's kind of like the expected or it's like encouraged cuz it's like yo like we're going to drink like let's do it it's like cool and stuff and especially if you're in a party setting especially around people you don't know sometimes if you like just go in like stone cold sober it's like oh i feel like i feel kind of like naked right now because like you're just like walking around and like you feel like all eyes are on you when everyone else is drinking i think it's a really tricky age because it's like really encouraged you see it like animal house stuff like that movies like that are always like you know promoting drinking in college um yeah. and like there's been mornings like where i wake up this isn't like every time i drink but like you know i'm like super like hungover and there's like the idea of like the emotional home and everything like that i've learned about that and mine is definitely like i would say like guilt and like you talked about being like a people pleaser that's like me for sure and i've noticed that i struggle a lot with that is like feeling like if i said something wrong or said something that wasn't even wrong i'm just like did i say something wrong and like if I'm drinking and like sometimes it's a little foggy. What happens is is I start over analyzing those situations, and the next morning I'm like, did I say something wrong to this person? And then I'm walking around campus, <laughs> I see someone yeah. like, who like does like a dirty look at me. I'm like, oh, they <laughs> said something horrible. Yeah. and I'm like, um, is this really that worth it? But like going yeah. back to it for people who are like my age, how would you distinguish like just being young and having fun? versus it being a problem that like the individual should approach because, you know, after college, I'm just curious, like, you know, the party has to end at some point and I just kind of want to get a gauge on that. Like, when do you know, like when it's a problem versus, you know, just have some fun, have a good time.
1: Yeah. That's a great, great, great question. And and I think this isn't just for you. If there are any parents (laughs) listening to your podcast, I think they should, their ears might want to perk up too, because, well, first of all, you know there's there's a lot of fear, understandably so, and you know especially with the the opioid a- epidemic and and I think we all know someone who's passed away who's young and and you know there's fentanyl and being spread throughout all different types of drugs and whatnot, so it, it's scary what what's out there, but it's also um so here's how I guess I would best answer that you know when when we first start whatever it is you know drinking smoking weed or whatever it might be um we do it for what's called the euphoric effect right it, it's fun uh you're hanging out with your friends uh it's a social lubricant if you will for you know it can be easier to talk to girls and guys and whatnot and and it's drinking goes back throughout our entire history you know as but it was, drinking was always done like in bars or outside you know now it's 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 kind of well whatever I I, I I let me pause there because i am gonna go down a bad road okay. So. Okay. <laughs> but um but, but nonetheless, what happens, so there's a difference between euphoric use and clinically, what we call dysphoric use. Dysphoric use is, is when you're drinking almost just to feel normal. And that can be um, you know, physically or emotionally, like you'll see an extreme example of that sometimes on the news, someone gets you know, pulled over by a cop and they're asked to walk the line and touch their nose and they do it well enough but the police officer smells you know booze on their breath and and then they blow like a really high bac you know blood alcohol content level and you're like how did that how did that guy drive let alone do the road test and the answer is had he not been drinking he would have been in some you know huge level of withdrawal he would have been a a complete mess you know his tolerance was built up and whatnot and so that's dysphoric use when when you know in an extreme. Extreme example of it when you're using almost just to be and feel normal. Um, so that's a really good telltale sign. But when you're younger, rarely is it at that, at, at that stage. And, and if it is, you you, you kind of know, because you're pretty dysfunctional. But what you look for is like causes and conditions. And, and why, why am I drinking? And am I experiencing consequences as a result of this, you know, of, of my drinking or drugging or whatnot, really getting in the way of my life? You know, am I, not being responsible to my obligations, like not that everyone needs to be a perfect day student, but am I, you know, not even going to, you know, doing the bare minimum of what I need to do to get through? Am I over-focused? I'm wanting to, you know, and when you're young, you use the word party, but anesthetize how I'm feeling because I'm so uncomfortable in my own skin. You look at me as an athlete on the on the sports fields and, and you know, look the part and all that kind of stuff, but like I was really a mess on the inside. And if someone came and talked to me, not about like, you know, drinking's bad for your drugs are bad for you, but like, you know, what what is at the at the core of why you're drinking? Is it, is it to kind of feel like you, you know, is it the only way you can really feel like you fit in? Because life gets hard and more complicated and and, and a lot more responsibility and anxiety. And, and that's why it's you know, the, the disease of addiction is progressive in nature. And that's what exactly what happened to me. I was able to keep it in check and I had enough guardrails and it which kept me in line for the most part. Um, eventually it got the better of me. And and so, um, you know, that dysphoric use of where I feel like I almost need it, not just like, okay, it's Thursday night and we're going to go and get wasted, you know, but, you know, more of like, the, there's, there's a core underlying issue, the co-occurring disorders, I'm drinking over the depression, the anxiety or feeling shame or, or alone, or I've got a lot of secret hatreds and when I'm not drinking or, or using it, I, I feel like, you know, um off, if you will, or not myself, or I need it to be the person that I am. Like, those are things that you kind of want to look at and, and monitor, but it is hard to distinguish because like you said, it's a party culture in college. If I get a parent that calls me and it's like, I found a little joint in my son's car, like, <laughs> is he an addict? Like, I don't know, but I wouldn't be not, not based on that, you know, like, um, so, you know, it's something to, to talk about and assess out, but, Really trying to see and being honest with yourself, causes and conditions. What's 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 creating this use? Is it getting in the way of my life? Is it becoming an issue? Am I experiencing consequences as a result of this? Am I genuinely unhappy unless I'm partying? That that would be a telltale sign that you're a budding addict or alcoholic.
0: Yeah, and I was just curious about that because, like, for me, and I think this is a lot of people. Like in college, it depends. I don't want to speak for everybody, but like. I don't have any problem like Sunday to Thursday just not drinking at all because I'm not like put in that environment where there's drinking because like most kids like it's not too much of a party school. So like there's not like everyone's going out. But if I were in those situations, the, the mistakes not being made when I'm at the party and drinking, the mistakes being made, not even a mistake, but like me just going there and being in that environment is what's causing the drinking for me. So like, that's kind of like where I, you know, get to that point. Cause then I'm like, oh, like I'll, I'll drink a couple tonight. And then like my friends are like, yo, let's go do shots. And then I'm like, okay, fine. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. So like, that's kind of where I've struggled with, but it's interesting to hear like, you can, you know just making sure like keeping in check, like, okay make sure like you're not getting into that point where you're using dysphoric use.
1: Yeah. And I'll say this, like um what makes someone an addict. It's not so much the the frequency. It can be, like I said, it can be the 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 you know that that vision of the person homeless on the street, you know, you know that's drinking around the clock or whatever. Like, but that's that's that does exist. But that's not most alcohol. Like most of the clients I work with are really, really, really high functioning people. You people, you would be blown away to know that they, they struggle with this. Even like, um, I had a client a few years ago. You know, housewife in in her, uh, uh, I guess it was late 30s, early 40s. She would drink two glasses of wine a night. Now, granted, she weighed like 105 pounds, but she would do things um, that like leave her infants on the on the washing machine and dryer and shut the door because she was buzzed off of two glasses of wine. Now, you wouldn't think two glasses of wine would mean that you're an alcoholic or whatnot, but it, it, it's it's and and she wasn't doing that every night, but every time she was drinking, like. She would kind of you know it it was um a, a shift in her personality and you know there's a the book jekyll and hyde was actually written by an alcoholic metaphorically about alcoholism and so it doesn't mean like if i don't drink sunday through thursday that means i'm not an alcoholic what happens when i do drink is there a personality shift do i become kind of a jerk or do i do wind up you know lowering my standards and doing things that i wouldn't normally think is okay. Like, so And you know, you, you, yes, you want to look at quantity, but there are also heavy drinkers out there who I wouldn't consider alcoholics because they don't have issues. They don't drive drunk. They show up to work or, or, or to school, they can stop anytime. So it, it there, there is definitely um, subtleties to that. So I, I don't want to give the impression it's, it's when or how often it's more about why, you know, why, why am I, um, uh, you know, uh, drawn to this and, and is it getting in the way of my life?
0: like, I feel like also just adding on to that, like you hear like, oh, I only drink like once a week. Like you might think, oh, okay, that's totally normal. But it's what happens in that one time. Because like also like that can have like an effect on like, if you're an overthinker and you like completely just get trashed for one night and then like, you don't remember everything and you like, you resort to like guilt or something that could affect you for the next like five days. And then you finally like get over it and then you know like then you're like okay let's do it again because it's the next weekend and then you just keep going into that cycle and i feel like that's definitely like happened before especially in like college because it's definitely as i mentioned it's like a tricky environment dealing with that and you know it's obviously fun and all like going out and having a good time but just being conscious of it has been like good too
1: yeah i think just be being mindful and and like and you know i'm not here to, to discourage parting by any means that would be hypocritical of me you know i i you know but i think being mindful and and if you're seeing red flags like to you know you know maybe ask your friends like you know do you see anything when i'm going out at night if, if you feel comfortable enough to do that i know i wouldn't have felt comfortable enough when i was you know when i was your age like that wasn't happening because i was trying to protect my vulnerability or or seeing you know if if there's things going on in your life going to maybe seek counsel or a therapist or you know something at at school you know they, there's a lot of services that are provided just to like say like am i okay and, and chances are you probably are you know but if you're not man what a gift it is to know that early on um it saves a lot of pain and, and, and suffering in the long run yeah
0: definitely and i want to just go back to do your own journey i i'm not gonna i don't want to take up too much more of your time but um like considering you've gone through like you you've gone you go through like your healing journey every single day um, that's what I've learned from people that have gone through like this process. Like it never really ends. You have to keep working on it. And obviously you work with people that are just starting out. So how do you like, because I know you probably have your own approach and what works for you. How do you deal with that with like clients? You know, because what you might do for yourself might not always be the best for certain clients. So how do you kind of keep what your needs are like separate from like your clients' needs?
1: Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> Give me some hardballs here. So um my philosophy is um. I want to meet a client where they're at, you know, so I don't want anyone to feel like I'm pulling them or my company or anyone who works in my company is pulling them or pushing them. That doesn't work. You know, metaphorically, I want my arm around or arm around you and we're walking with you. And, um, you know, sometimes that means, you know, we're we're co-authoring this, you know, because you need to want this too. You know, if there's a saying in my field, like if if you feel like you're working harder than your client, then it's just not working. You know, if I'm more worried or more concerned and always doing more things, like it becomes almost like a codependent, like dysfunctional engagement with that client. And 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 they probably need a higher level of care that, that you're not providing to them at that point. But the, the, the client sort of co-authoring treatment, and sometimes that means with my arm metaphorically walking with them around them, uh, telling them things that they might, know saying things that they might not want to hear and that's sort of if you think of someone's disease almost as their alter ego like um their alter ego having issue with disrupting the path that they're on you know so there's so many like i said so many different ways to 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 go on this path and i'm very open-minded you know some people are very 12-step oriented like groups like alcoholics anonymous and whatnot other people are completely averse to that and, you know, it, it, it it's all good. Um, you know, of course I have my personal preference. I try not to project that onto anyone, but if someone's interested, I'm more than happy to share what worked for me. Um, but, you know, it, and it's very complicated. Um, some people are more, you know, when you look at the co-occurring, you know, the alcoholism or the addiction, along with the mental health, you know, you really have to have a good understanding of what is in that, that bag, that mix of the mental health and address that. And a lot of people, have um, major major trauma who get into recovery. Sometimes you know our brains are really good at compartmentalizing that. It's called dissociation. Where I've had clients who had horrible things happen, to them, like the worst of the worst in childhood, and they get into recovery, and all of a sudden it gets unearthed in their memory. And, and so um, you know how do you treat that? You know you 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 have to understand it. You know if I'm going to look at uh, an individual and try and just project what worked onto me onto them, like we're all very very different there are some commonalities and things that you look for, but really addressing, you know, I like looking at it holistically. And that's why when you said what well, my company does, and you, people might hear, oh, yoga, big deal, whatever, but no, it is, it's all it's, if all I did was talk with clients about harm, reduction, you know, like, uh, uh you know, abstaining from drinking, it would get boring very quickly. Again, that's the manifestation of what's going on, you know, and, and um, relapse prevention, yes, we're going to talk about things like that specific you know when looking at your history and whatnot but it's really at looking at them holistically and you know uh mind body spirit and and what's going on in their life and and building that life that again is is recalibrated towards their their happiness and uh and so you know that's what we look to do and and um it's um it's a fluid process and 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 we figure it out and uh you know you just really want to make sure that they're being heard while you're also not maybe even unbeknownst to, to you enabling what what might be going on. And so it is a little tricky, but that's part of what makes it interesting and fun. And if it was just about not drinking, my job would be really boring, you know. And so um it's it there are definitely a lot of different nuances to it.
0: And I think also what you were saying, this came back to me is that like it's so much like more of a relief when you know that like other people are going through the same thing as like you are like when you're put into that situation and like knowing like even the people that are helping you have been through it and like they've gained all this knowledge and benefited from it is like huge that's where I struggle the most is like thinking that I'm going it alone and like there's times in my life where it comes up there's times when it goes away but it's kind of like peaks and valleys but that's always been a huge help to me Uh, I just have you know one or two more questions for you. Obviously, Trevor, like just going back to your own personal story, like what are some things in your life that like now you look back on and you say like if this were like 15 years ago or like 20 years ago, like you would have handled it a lot differently or like it would have been a disaster. Some things that you you would think like oh I've grown a lot in this area.
1: Yeah, so um, you know one of the cornerstones of my sort of shift and when i got into recovery and and that i try and practice every day i used to have a lot of like resentments and and um kind of a chip on my shoulder and i and i hid that from everybody and i took things very personally and there's an adage that i like a lot which is, is hurt people hurt people meaning if if someone's hurting inside they're more prone to act out and you know i know for me like you know you see i have a sling on my shoulder i just had shoulder surgery a little over a week ago I'm a little bit more ornery than I normally am because I'm in <laughs> physical pain. And by the way, the, the exact same part of the brain that experiences physical pain is also where the brain experiences emotional pain. That's why people often use painkillers for both. But that, that's just a little side note. But you know, when um, by focusing on my side of the street, I'm able to have a, much more my bearings down. Where when someone happens or someone says something. Um, it doesn't land on me like like it used to, or where I, I I'm I'm um, I, I, I understand sometimes people are, are are having their own issues, and that might be why. And it could be something trivial like at, at the supermarket where you know someone bangs into your car by accident and they're rude, <laughs> and and I have to understand that's not about me. And if I'm not taking care of myself, I'm more prone because then I'm hurting. I'm more prone to. Act out or, or escalate something on something so trivial like that, but more meaningfully, like in in my home and in my interpersonal relationships and whatnot, are so much more uh, loving and, and and charismatic and and um uh you know because I I understand that and coming from a place of compassion and and so you know I I I think you know really a lot of it is about how I in, interact and engage with people and and by the way when I am wrong and and I'm often wrong I I promptly make amends or take care of that so that that doesn't linger most of the anxiety that i experienced in my life and i struggled for, for from severe anxiety much of my life i learned was self-induced by the way i was living life like trying to avoid things or dodge and weave or not take ownership or, or responsibility when i needed to and um and so um you know it allows me to navigate through life without constantly being tweaked and, and um irritated or you know, depressed or or angry or resentful or whatnot. So I guess I'm that's sort of an obtuse way of answering your question. I, I don't know if you need something more specific, but really like understanding that principle of hurt people, hurt people and applying that to when I'm experiencing that from someone or just not knowing like when someone cuts me off, maybe may, maybe their their wife is about to get away. Like who know, like who knows? Just having more of an open mind and not taking things so personally
0: and i've actually never heard that like saying before but like it makes total sense and also it's such a relief hearing this like at my age because i feel like i just put the weight of the world on like everything and like even those like those little situations like when i put the weight of the world on everything those little situations like what you said in like the grocery store or something when someone bangs into your cart like those trigger like two or three hours of like agitation to me. like those <laughs> like like those type of things like i just start like i'm like like the thoughts just start compounding. You're like, oh, like I'm pissed off at this person, and then all of a sudden you you go to yeah. something else negative, and then you just keep bouncing around, and it keeps like compiling just based on like one little thing. But also just knowing that like as you grow, like grow up, like you slowly like start to, you know, everything like compounds and everything, like if you, you put in the yeah. work which is really like good knowing because at my age, I'm like, oh, I don't have everything figured out. Like, I, you know, I'm I'm a mess or like stuff like that. It's all about like, you know, just believing that things are gonna slowly compound and over time, like see that that's the case. Also like, do you have any other like final thoughts to leave like people off with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, look, you know, I, I would just say this generally speaking, when, when either you're struggling yourself, you know, and, and the word denial is used so much, you know, w- when you kind of have an idea that there might be an issue with you, you know, let's start there versus, you know, a loved one, you know, I, I talked about the, the sort of um, misnomer of what addiction is and and all that, but there's also a big misnomer and a stigma on like, what recovery is and when i'm asked to give talks at like schools or you know other places like that and they ask me like what should we call your talk i always say uh just say you know call it the best gifts come in poorly wrapped packages right and like for me my whole life and my childhood like was a very poorly wrapped gift in my opinion that you know I wouldn't be the person I am today had it not been for that I never would have found recovery I never would have found a different approach to life I wouldn't have the meaning that I have right now um so I could have been living like sort of a c plus life and now I feel like I have you know kind of an a plus life with that piece of you know trust me on any given day I'm full of stress or anxiety especially with what I do but but like you know the, the the places where I have problems now didn't even exist in my life before, and so you know that notion that my life is over is is definitely not uh, not true at all. Especially if if you take a real humble, open-minded approach to this, and as far as like loved ones, like um, if, if you know um, understanding that no way, no no one is choosing that, right? They they have, you can provide them an opportunity to choose to get help. But you know, shaming—all it's doing is exacerbating the situation. And like I said, going to the source of pain, looking for comfort. So when you come down hard on someone, like, what is wrong with you? How could you know? oddly enough, you think, well, there's no way she's going to drink or he's going to drink after that. And that's the first thing they're going to do because they want to, again, anesthetize how they're feeling. They're feeling discomfort and shame and whatnot. So trying your best to keep an open mind and give them the opportunity in the most loving way, not enabling, please don't mistake what I'm saying as enabling or, or, or you know, be getting, you know, manipulated. you know, active addicts and alcoholics are, can be extremely manipulative. Like, don't get me wrong. I understand all that. But taking an approach that's really going to be effective to, to lead to real long-term healthy recovery. And you know, I guess that, those would be my sort of my parting thoughts.
0: Totally. That, no, that's great. And I think that like, it's so important to, you know, realize that, and also just like, even if you're not struggling with this, helping like your family members, cause even when your family members are struggling, you're struggling too. So even if it's not like a personal thing and also yeah. just people who might be struggling with this or have family members, how could they maybe reach out to you? Like what type of information I could put in the show notes as well, but what would be <laughs> good ways to like reach out to you?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm happy to help anybody, you know, if anyone has a question or whatnot, I'll, I'll just throw out my my personal cell phone number. And I never want anyone to think if they call me that I'm going to uh, like charge them or need their credit, like, please know, like, that's just not who I am. Um, yes, this is my, you know, I, I want to help people or guide people in the right direction. So my my cell phone is is 917 653 3899, or you can always email me at uh, Trevor, T R E V O R, at Sterling Recovery, S T E R L I N G, recovery.com. So, or get in touch with you and, you know, um, have them, you can connect us to, But anything I can do to help someone or point them in the right direction, or even if they have a question, you know, that, that um, they think is, I, I'm, I'm happy to help is all i can say
0: thank you trevor and just uh, also like if you want to reach out to me and then i can reach out to trevor as well my instagram is 19 year old shrink podcast and then wjg is my personal page um, but hope you guys took a lot away from this talk and have a great rest of your day